So I want to um, base this evening's talk on a teaching story that I know that many of you are familiar with because I've already told it to you. But some of you may not be so familiar with it. So uh, I think it's very important to, to kind of listen to this kind of teaching metaphor very carefully and to actually look at how it applies to our own experience. And actually, from the get-go, I will ask you, please, to forgive the awkwardness of the language in this translation. So it goes like this. When an untaught worldling is touched by a painful bodily feeling, he worries and grieves. He or she laments beats their breast, weeps, and is distraught. Thus, he or she experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily feeling and a mental feeling. It is as if the person were pierced by an arrow, and following the first piercing, they are hit by a second arrow. So that person will experience feelings caused by two arrows. But in the case of a well-taught noble disciple, which we all are, when they are touched by a painful feeling, they will not worry nor grieve and lament. They will not beat their breast and weep, nor will they be distraught. It is one kind of feeling they experience, a bodily one, but not a psychological or mental one. It is as if a man, a person, were pierced by an arrow, but was not hit by the second arrow following the first one. So this person experiences feelings caused by a single arrow only. To just kind of transpose that, translate that into your own experience, maybe some experiences you've had today. You know, perhaps you went in the dining room and dropped your salad on the floor. It's an experience. It's an event. Perhaps if you were an untaught worldling, (laughs) you would then lament and grieve and beat your breast. You know, why did I drop the salad on the floor? What does everybody think of me now? I am such a fool. I am always doing things like dropping salad on the floor. You have two kinds of feelings, two kinds of arrows. Or we could just see the salad dropped on the floor and take care of it. Suppose you went out for a walk and you stubbed your toe on a rock. It would hurt. It wouldn't matter whether you were a Dharma practitioner or not a Dharma practitioner. It would hurt. It's the first arrow. It's the first kind of feeling, a bodily feeling. And then, of course, there are endless possibilities that unfold. If I was more mindful, I would have seen that rock. Who put that rock there anyway? You know, rocks are part of my life. They're always being put in my way. It's the second kind of arrow, isn't it? Suppose you have a thought that arises. A difficult thought. It is, it is sometimes it's sad. Sometimes it's painful. It is the first arrow. We do have at times difficult feelings. Difficult thoughts do arise. 
And there is a second arrow. I want different kinds of thoughts. I shouldn't feel like this. I want this to go away. We are pierced by two arrows. Now, as awkward and really and as archaic as the language in this teaching story is, it really doesn't detract from the simple uh, fact that this story, this teaching story, actually provides the context and provides the framework for the entire path of insight meditation. It also uh, provides the context, actually. It is the roots of all mindfulness-based applications and practices. It also has something to do with us. It has something to do with us. I think in our own practice, in our own lives, we're constantly being asked to discern the difference between the two arrows, moment to moment. Constantly being asked to explore the possibility of coming back again and again to the simple truth, the simple actuality of the first arrow. And begin to see the way in which the extra layers of narrative and reactivity and identification and selfing are actually superimposed upon the first arrow or the core actuality. And in reality, and this is something very much to check out in our own experience, every moment that we can actually discern the difference between those two arrows, um, every moment we can learn to return to the kind of first arrow with kindness and curiosity, rather than being lost in the narratives. I think we are learning what it means actually to bring emotional and psychological suffering and torment to an end. Then we can do that, we're actually learning the skills of transforming the landscape of our hearts and minds. We're learning the lessons of balance and resilience. We're learning sometimes some very profound lessons of acceptance and compassion. These are all lessons of insight. And in a way, they're, they're kind of teaching ourselves about freedom They're kind of teaching ourselves about how to liberate the moment from the optional pain of the second arrow. Now, it's in the domains of these two arrows, of course, that um, the majority of our attention and energy and time and preoccupation is directed and invested in our lives. It's where our psychological and our emotional energies live. It's where we form the view of our view of the world, of other people, of ourselves. And the invitation in this practice and this path is that we can learn to direct the attention capacity we have in an intentional and compassionate and wise way. So I want to look at these the the domains of these two arrows a little bit separately. So what is the first arrow? And the first arrow really embraces all the core experiences 
that come simply with being an embodied human being. It's the arrow that weaves its way through all of our lives and none of us are exempt. My understanding, the first arrow describes a pervasive and the unavoidable human condition. And I call this the realm of the unarguables. The things that we cannot argue with. The non-negotiables. They are universal, the unarguables. They actually connect us all. So I want to just kind of draw up a short list of the unarguables. The the experiences and events that none of us can argue with. The first is, of course, that we will all die. We don't know when. We don't know how. But we do know that one day we will only live in the memory of others. We do know we are mortal, that there will be an ending in this life. We know it's not negotiable. We know it's an outcome of being born. This is also true, of course, of all those that we love, of all those that we dislike, all those that we know and all those that we don't know. And the simple reality is that neither our love or our attachment or our liking or disliking or rejection actually makes any difference at all to this unarguable. We live within a body. We are embodied beings. This body has known or may know right now youth, times of health, times of energy, times of vitality, Yet this body will unarguably age. It will meet pain. And all of us will actually be asked in our own way to respond to this inevitable process. It's often, for many of us, it's an ongoing lesson in loss. Loss of youth loss of capacity, changes in appearances. I think we all wake up some mornings realizing that what was possible for us at some point in our life is actually no longer so. I know that my days of being able to stay up all night partying imbibing all kinds of things that aren't particularly helpful and getting up in the morning and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and going out to meet the world, this is something of the past. There's no longer an operative way of being in my life. Certainly my definition of aging is that the periods of time when everything works well at the same moment, they get shorter and shorter. (laughs) You don't actually have to be that old to experience this, by the way. You could actually be, still be relatively young. We will all experience pain. We will all experience illness at different times in our lives. This is an unarguable. Sometimes it may be traumatic illnesses or just a symphony of the everyday little aches. 
It is not good. It's not bad. It what it, it's what is. So the second unarguable is the universal reality of change. We nod our heads wisely. But we don't always know how to live so wisely with the implications and the repercussions of this unarguable, this universal reality. And actually the very universal law, very universal rhythm of change, of impermanence, is often at times lessons of loss, not only of the difficult, also of the lovely. And if we're wise, living in the light of this universal unarguable, it's a lesson in learning how to let go. We know that nothing stands still in this life. There is nothing or no one in that reality that we can keep or that we can make stay the same or that we can hold on to, not the lovely and not the terrible. Personally, I think this unarguable of change is a vast unarguable. Of course, we welcome change when it benefits us. That's, there's that piece. You know? I love the ending of a root canal. <laughs> I'm so happy about impermanence when it comes to a root canal. I'm not so happy when the sun doesn't keep shining. What I see is that my wanting and not wanting around change really makes no difference. We could all have you know, great philosophical conversations about impermanence. But the real question, I think, is how, how do we live in the light of that understanding? How do we embody our understanding of impermanence? When you see in a single day how we live in this fleeting world that sights and sounds and thoughts and sensations, emotions, coming and going, born and dying, arising and passing. And our perception of stability is no more than that. It is no more than a perception. And we realize there's very little, or anyone, in this ever-shifting landscape that we're actually in charge of. It's quite a revelation, isn't it? That we actually can control. We can't determine that the lunch we enjoyed today will be repeated tomorrow. We can't determine that the sun will shine tomorrow. We can't legislate that other people will only change in ways that we want them to change. We can't legislate that our computer will never break down. There's so little of in the world of conditions, which we actually control. But interestingly, that doesn't leave us helpless. We can't determine that from here on in, we will only have pleasant people and sights and sounds and thoughts and sensations in our lives. We stand, in reality, on shifting sands. And we, too, are actually part of that perpetual shifting. We see in the world the kaleidoscope of process and conditions unfolding, interfacing with each other, 
moment to moment in different ways. It is a major unarguable. And then the third unarguable we're probably all asked to embrace at different times in our life is that there are moments of disappointment. Times when our life or the moment really doesn't just turn out the way we hoped or expected. Times we lose people we love or they change in ways hard to accept. We can't be entirely successful in defending ourselves against loss or pain. Times we get what we want, other times not. Expectations can be disappointed. No one, no matter how much they love or care for us, can actually fix things for us. Some of the pains that we may feel. Disappointment can actually seem like very bad news. My understanding is that it's actually the starting place of most journeys of transformation. Hey, you think about Siddhartha. He was a very disappointed young man on one level. You know, he had everything. He had everything in terms of role, identity, as much comfort as you could have in India at that time. And what he actually saw, it didn't actually really defend him or protect him from the unarguables. I see it sometimes with people who, who suddenly meet unexpected illness or unexpected loss that it can feel initially such bad news and then actually sometimes is truly a wake-up call to an invitation to meet life as it is rather than how we hoped or think it should be. When we look at the unarguables, I think at first glance or we first hear them, oh, it can sound very bleak, you know, very depressing. But I don't think it actually is. For many of us, it's a beginning of our own path of investigation, of awakening, and indeed of compassion. Indeed of compassion. We can get into value judgments around the unarguables of good and bad, but they don't make any, any difference. None of the unarguables, the reality of being embodied, the realities of change, the realities of not being in control of conditions. None of these are our fault. These don't come into our life because somehow we've done something wrong or we haven't been good enough or we haven't tried hard enough. They are universal realities. And the reason why it's not bleak and not depressing is because of our capacity to understand the second arrow. Our capacity to actually free our own hearts from the second arrow. Now the Buddha used this word dukkha that Chris uh, mentioned yesterday. And sometimes, you know, we don't have a good English translation or a good English substitution. Sometimes it's translated as dis-ease. Not disease, but dis-ease. The sense of dis-ease. Um, dukkha, as the Buddha put it, pervades our lives, including 
including the first arrow. But there are dimensions of the second arrow that I spoke about in the metaphor, the the, uh, emotional, psychological torment. This is considered to be optional. Considered to, to be understood. In fact, this is what the Buddha said about dukkha. It is something to be understood, to be met, to be examined. To mention the first day, the first start, you know, the, 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 the moments in our life when we, when we meet the painful, when we stub our toe, when we drop our salad, you know, when we uh, kind of encounter loss, this is actually where the path of mindfulness actually begins. Where we can begin to live an intentional life. Many times we turn away from the first arrow, don't we? And yet, what this, the very nature of this path is actually this invitation. We can turn towards the first arrow. Then we start on a path of mindfulness. Turning away from the first arrow, turning away from the unarguables, I think has some fairly catastrophic consequences for our lives in terms of increasing entanglement, fear, anxiety, avoidance. The first arrow can and is often painful. The first arrow sometimes is very sad. The second arrow is where torment begins. The anger, the resistance, the feeling this shouldn't be happening, this can't be happening. The second arrow, of course, is where our narrative about the first arrow actually begins. It's where we begin our obsessions, our ruminations, our reactivity. It's the home of fear and guilt and blame and anxiety and depression. The second arrow basically is what happens when we get into a state of argument with the unarguable. That basically simple. Second arrow happens when we get into a state of argument with the unarguable. This happens in the absence of mindfulness and investigation. It's very interesting to explore the, 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 how compatible mindfulness is with emotional habits. I would often suggest, you know, you try in a very basic level, try, try to tie your shoelaces habitually and mindfully at the same time. It's not that easy. Try to have a scratch habitually and mindfully at the same time. It's not that easy, is it? Try to have an emotional habit pattern mindfully. You know, try, try to do clinging mindfully. You know, try try to be aversive mindfully. You know, try to be judgmental mindfully. It's interesting how it doesn't actually really work. You know, like you can't quite convince yourself of it because in a, in actually to really do you know clinging, aversion, grasping, holding, resistance, it involves a kind of willing a, a, a tendency to be lost. When you actually bring mindfulness into the equation, of course, you're establishing a dialogue 
with emotional habit patterns. You're establishing a relationship, a conversation, you might say, with emotional habit patterns, which actually has the direct effect of the actually increasing inability to be lost. Now, sometimes that feels like a curse. You know, I remember talking to someone here, you know, years ago. I had a bad, you know, having a bad day of practice, you know, difficult day of practice. So, of course, you know, the usual ideas arise. You know, the cure for this is chocolate. You know. So they said, oh, off they go to Denver. You know, it's a good, it's a good mile walk, isn't it? You know, off they go the whole way of the walking. You know, going for the chocolate. I don't need this chocolate. I don't actually really need this chocolate at all. I know this chocolate is actually not going to make a difference. Still trying to get into, get into the store, buying the chocolate, coming all the way back. I knew, I knew that chocolate wasn't going to make any difference. You know, I knew it was actually it, it was kind of a ridiculous thing to do. You know, it was like impossible to get lost in it, and it feels like a curse, doesn't it? Sometimes you ever notice that sometimes mindfulness initially feels, boy. <laughs> You know, you got that little voice back there saying, you know, this is a habit, you know, you may not need to do this. It's, it's, it's a phase. I would say it's a phase. I, I would say it's a phase of conscious incompetence. <laughs> we know what we're doing and we're doing it anyway. That feels a bit of a curse. But it changes. It changes. But what is interesting to see is that habit and mindfulness cannot totally coexist. So by beginning to bring mindfulness into emotional habit patterns, it's establishing a dialogue, it's actually putting a restraining element, I would say, on those emotional habit patterns. It's actually bringing them under the light, almost like the microscope of mindfulness, which is a beginning of investigation. So... The Buddha put it that there are ways and there are, a lot, there are a number of unskillful but also often quite universal ways of responding or we might say reacting to the first arrow. Some of these we can probably spot in our own repertoire. One of the ways is anger. Whose fault is this? might be your fault, might be my fault, but I will not accept this. So this is the first, one of the first responses. Another kind of response often in our, in our, in our repertoire is resistance. Push us away, I don't want to feel this. I want this to be here. Another response, or we might say reaction at times, emotional habit reaction, is resignation kind of despair. No. Can't do anything about it. Helpless. It's because I'm, I'm not good enough that life works out this way. But it, it's, uh, it's beyond my control. Nothing I can do. Another one, sometimes in our repertoire, is guilt. You know? The, I'm experiencing this because I deserve to experience this. Because somehow I'm a failure, I'm not good enough, you know, I, I, I somehow disappointed others. What the actual Buddha said in these reactions um, is, is, is the willingness to see that they are suffering in themselves and that they actually compound suffering. 
And actually, what we actually do see in our own experiences, we often don't even have just two arrows. We often have a third one. You know, we have a painful experience. We have a reaction to it, the narrative, the story, the blame. The, and, then, and then we have the third arrow, which is the judgment. You know, if I was a better person, I wouldn't even experience this. So we actually ha- have got more, more creative. <laughs> now, we don't always know, but we are learning. What we are concerned with learning here is how to bring a wise, a mindful, a kind, a compassionate attention to all moments of our life, but certainly to moments of loss, of illness, of death, of unwelcome change. We're learning, actually, that even in the moments when our worlds crumble, there is the possibility of bringing an inwardly generated sense of balance and compassion. This is a very different pathway than the more familiar ones of, of turning away and feeling it's too much to bear or beginning to ruminate and wallow and get entangled. We often fear being drowned by the difficult. We often fear being engulfed by the difficult, which of course really supports that, that tendency to turn away. And sometimes, of course, you know, when we do fear that, you know, we just want to live a much more distracted life. Because a distracted life, it, in some weird way, can feel like a protected life. Or we can, as this teaching, this pathway does suggest, we learn to walk another pathway. We learn that there are available to us skills, ways of responding rather than reacting. We can learn to stop and to breathe and to to pause and to breathe out that this very pain, this very sorrow, this very loss that seems to threaten to destroy us actually can also be the ground in which we learn the deepest lessons of compassion, of acceptance, of kindness, and the ways to free ourselves from the second dart. We could, I think, say that this path of mindfulness really begins in the very moment when we can pause in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of uncertainty, and to turn towards it and to know it is as it is. This is not a statement of passivity. It's not a statement of resignation. It's not a statement of endurance. But to know this is as it is, in my mind, is much more of a statement of a very profound willingness to stand in the midst of all the whole of our lives and embrace the whole of our lives. And I feel this is a radical acceptance. It is a radical acceptance. I heard of a woman saying when she encountered a... a chronic, life-threatening illness. She said, the moment that I stopped asking why is this happening to me and could say, why would this not happen to me? 
that that was the moment that the healing could begin. Now, at the very heart of the path of awakening, I think in the very key first step of mindfulness, the Buddha placed mindfulness of the body. We've talked about it here. This very first foundation of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the body, the place where most of the important lessons of mindfulness are actually learned and then applied elsewhere in our life. The Buddha suggested to learn what it means to be truly embodied. In fact, even suggested that without mindfulness of the body, there is no mindfulness at all. Now, it is important to understand why why this is given such such emphasis and why it is actually given such emphasis in mindfulness-based applications. I think we recognize the tendency for division. We recognize the tendency for dissociation. We recognize the tendency to to create this split between mind and body. Sometimes we recognize the tendency to create hierarchies between mind and body. For some, there will be a preferencing of mind. For some, there will be a preferencing of body. And yet what the Buddha talked about, actually, was that any of that preferencing and any of that division is a recipe for heedlessness and it's a recipe for disconnection that will get repeated in countless places in our lives. We see the tendency to be disembodied except when the body is in distress. I mean, you've probably seen that here, haven't you? I mean, you, you know, you could be quite lost in some fantasy, but wait till your knee hurts. You know, suddenly you are embodied, but notice the different ways of em- being embodied. That sometimes we are forced to be in the body through the, the shouts, the loud voices of pain, but then very often the way that we see the body is actually through the lens of aversion, which is actually something different than being embodied. But very often we're elsewhere. (laughs) And I'm sure you've sensed that here too. How often we can sit and, you know, we are elsewhere. We're in in the stories, in, in the narratives, in the imagining of the future, the remembering upon the past. And and just think about the the commentaries. About the commentaries about the present. So often we live in our stories and our constructions and perception, and we perceive the world through them. And we can have a story pretty much about everything. How many story-free moments have you encountered today? You go out to walk. Have you noticed that? It is kind of like we move into being the sort of eternal landscape gardener. In a, uh, grass is green, needs to move that over there. You know, they could plant roses over there. You know, it's a walking path. You know, and you see the commentary beginning just to flow through, or sometimes about others. They've got an amazing walking style. And can't try that one, you know. Or they've got the right pace. They really look like they know what they're doing. And they can't try that pace. Lost in the kind of constructions. How often we live with our fears and anxieties of what might be our plans about what should be. And we actually even hardly even barely notice 
that the body is still moving, still sitting, still walking, still breathing, still sensing, still touching the ground. And the first thing that we notice about the body when we really are mindful of it, this is a present tense experience. The body is always a present tense experience. I do not experience last year's broken leg. I do not experience next year's toothache. The body is here and it is now and it is this moment. And we learn in mindfulness of the body of the kind of difference between the somatic experience, which actually really only can be felt, can be known experientially, and the world of constructions and, and um, narrative. Now, this is not in any way to suggest that this practice is anti-cognitive or that it's somehow anti-thought. It's not to suggest that in any way because try to get through this life without thought and just recognize the ways in which thought can be such a tremendous ally that through our thoughts we learn there can be enormous creativity, reflectiveness, investigation, communication, articulation, but also recognizing that in the world of our thoughts there can be tremendous confusion and complexity. On a very diff- basic level, in mindfulness of the body, we are learning the difference between sensation and story. We're learning the difference between the sight and the story about it, the sound and the story about it. This is actually a training for our lives. It is a training for understanding the difference between these two arrows. By attending, but by attending to the somatic experience of the body, what we are actually doing is bringing the present moment into focus, aren't we? We see that sensation, we feel that breath, we feel that footfall. But she bringing the present moment into focus, knowing it and meeting it. Because that present moment focus of the body is not imagining the future, it's not regretting the past, it actually is feeling what is. And it's learning to be with what is. We learn that lesson in the body. The actuality rather than and the imagining. It takes a lot of willingness to live in this present moment focus, to meet what is. It takes so much willingness. I think willingness is sometimes a hard-earned lesson in our life. You know, because the habit of, of avoidance, the habit of, of uh, dissociation can be so strong. And actually, I, I meet so many people, for example, who come into practice or come into mindfulness-based application, and they come because they have finally realized the futility of avoidance and, and the desperation of avoidance. Then the willingness comes to turn towards what is. But you've also experienced here, you're developing a sense of capacity. You know, how many times you return, how many times you come back, how many times you renew intention, and how you're actually strengthening the capacity to do that. It is a learning to let go of the imagining, the regrets, the speculating, and to inhabit this body and this moment as it is, and, you know, 
we don't just do this once. Every sitting might be a thousand moments of letting go. <coughs> every walking might be a hundred moments of letting go and coming back. And every single one of them is worthy. Because every single one of them is reteaching <coughs> ourselves a lesson in being with what is, in letting go of the second arrow, learning to be embodied. It's a lot of countering of tendencies, a lot of countering of tendencies. You know, on one level, you could also almost say that you know, the very cultivation of mindfulness is a cultivation of a skillful emotional pattern as an antidote to less skillful ones. The patterns of distractedness, of wanting to explain, of living apart from this moment. This is where we develop capacity. Intentional attention rather than the habit of inattention. Something happens in that. Today, could you be a little bit more aware of what was going on in the body and the mind than yesterday? Maybe not consistently. Maybe not in a linear sense. But you may have noticed already, actually, the way in which this, this, this repeated and continual coming back actually begins to calm down and slow down inner processes. And that's so important. To begin to calm down and slow down inner processes so we can actually see what is happening actually see what is going on in the mind, what is going on in the body. You can, we actually begin to feel, in a way, our world being born, the world of fear, the world of frustration, or the world of expectation. We actually begin to feel it being born within the body and within the thoughts. And something else happens. Begin to be able to see a thought as a thought. Just as we learn to see a sensation as a sensation, we learn to see a thought as a thought. It is a rotation of consciousness. That that which previously was kind of like the, the entirety of consciousness actually becomes an object of mindfulness. There's an enormous freedom in that. Training capacity. Learning to attend to the messages of the body with sustained attention really asks us to inhabit a different kind of landscape. Not the landscape of reactivity, of aversion, but the landscape of curiosity and receptivity. It is a radical shift in attitude. We can feel and we know what we feel. We can feel and actually know it rather than interpreting it in the light of what we should be feeling. It's actually a movement from a landscape of refusal, which is actually what aversion and rejection and judgment is all about. It's the landscape of refusal into the landscape of kindness, curiosity, <coughs> compassion. It's the primary attitudinal element of mindfulness. I see, you know, in again and again, if there is one liberating shift that mindfulness allows, it is, and that allows for everything else, 
it is this shift from aversion to kindness, to befriending, what, what Jenny was speaking about today, that kind of implicit training in learning to stand next to all things and to see the way that mindfulness and metta actually are so interwoven. You know, that metta is very, uh, mindfulness is very much turning towards experience. Metta is the attitudinal quality of befriending that which we turn towards. It doesn't mean we have to love it. We don't even have to like it. But we may be able to stand near to it. Think of, think of metta in that way, that capacity to stand near to, to stand beside. This is radical for many people. Rather than flight, rather than this dissociation, rather than disconnection, we learn this first within the body, we apply it to the whole of our lives. Have you noticed today in the practice, in the practice prior to this, something else we discover is actually we begin to discover that we can choose what we pay attention to and we can choose how we pay attention. I can choose to pay attention to my knee right now. I can choose to pay attention to the sensation of my foot touching the ground. I can choose to pay attention to what's actually going on in my mind. That sounds simple, doesn't it? The reality is that in difficult mental states, we feel we have no choice. We feel overwhelmed, we feel engulfed. It is the great helplessness of difficult emotions. Learning that we can choose to return to the body and primary experience of the body in this moment is actually a remarkable freedom. Because we can begin to step out of those closed feedback loops. Begin to step out of the repetitive thinking, the ruminative thinking, the obsessive thinking that just goes round and round in circles. And when we can do that, sometimes really surprising doors begin to open for us. We may discover that thoughts too and difficult emotions, just like difficult sensations, can be surrounded by kindness and compassion. What previously is felt to be unbearable or overwhelming actually becomes approachable. Staying close to the body and its experience, its changes, we also start to deconstruct our constructions. We so easily live in the solidity of our constructions. The I am's. I am sad. I am hopeless. I am fearful. I'm depressed. We so easily live in the constructions of this is, you know, my me, my pain, my sorrow. We live in constructions around the world too, don't we? This is terrible. That's awful. You are terrible. I'm terrible. A lot of what we're doing is actually learning to deconstruct the constructions by paying attention. We see process. 
We see thoughts arise and pass. We see emotions arise and pass. And we actually see that the constructions really, really totally rely upon clinging and grasping, upon identification, which is what moves a process into something that is reified, something that is solid. I'm actually learning to undo that reification and to move much more into process. Even the things that we said, you know, my knee. Actually, when we look at my aching knee and look beneath the concept and the story, actually we see a changing kaleidoscope of sensation, don't we? When we look beneath the construction of I am, we see a changing kaleidoscope of thoughts, emotions, memories, experiences coming together actually moment to moment in different ways until they're reified through clinging. Moving into an embodied life involves learning, I think, very profound lessons that are brought into all dimensions of our experience. Learning to bring the present moment into focus, learning to illuminate the present moment with mindfulness, discerning the difference between uh, the actual experience and the second arrow of our emotional reactivity, learning the lessons of change and process, learning to see all things as they actually are. It's a lot we learn within the body about the lessons of non-clinging, around non-identification, and the lessons of kindness and compassion. I think these are lessons of capacity that as human beings also discovering our capacity actually for remarkable courage, remarkable kindness, remarkable balance, remarkable spaciousness. I think the more that we practice, the more that we discover that we're not always a contracted, anxious person, people we can believe ourselves to be but developing the the capacity of the heart, the possibilities of the heart, for a genuine freedom moment to moment. Take just a moment or two quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.